Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A., member FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Company. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. This week, we talk about France. When we Americans hear the word French, we often think that the next word is supposed to be revolution. In our imagination, France is a place where the revolution didn't just happen in 1789, but happens every so often, ever since. Turns out the French think about themselves exactly the same way. Starting last November, protesters wearing yellow safety vests began to block rotaries and roundabouts all over France. And eventually they marched on Paris, where they talked seriously and threw stones and made a protest about a whole range of economic issues that were bothering them. The protests continued, and the French President Emmanuel Macron was required to take major steps in response. And since today is Bastille Day, the day that France celebrates as the recognition of its own revolutionary independence, we thought this was a perfect time to review the movement from beginning to end. To do that, we're joined today by Agnès Poirier, a French journalist based in the UK, who wrote a wonderful article about her uncle Jojo and his role in the Gilets Jaunes or Yellow Vest protests. Agnès, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. I want to ask about the concrete element of the, the metaphor of the, of the Yellow Vest. Uh, what are they for? Why do, why do the French carry Gilets Jaunes in their cars? It's actually compulsory to have a yellow vest uh, or high visibility jacket in uh, your car in case uh, your car breaks down. Um, it means that uh, you have to uh, park your car as safely as possible, put on your jacket, leave um, the car and uh, put yourself in a safe place. So the upshot is that everyone who has a car has a yellow vest, making it a very simple thing to put on as part of a, a mode of, of protest. But it was also connected to the origin of these protests, which began with attacks on petrol or gasoline. 
Yes, completely. Uh, car drivers, basically, um, very angry at uh, a carbon tax on petrol and diesel, um, started the movement, hence the uh, the yellow vest, probably. And also, you know, it's a, a metaphor. It's, it's a kind of call for help. You know, you're putting your yellow vest because you want to be seen. Uh, you want to be seen in order to be helped. Um, so in a way, it was very appropriate uh, symbol, if you'd like, of their movement, at least when it started. I wanted to ask about the, that petrol tax, the, the tax on diesel that started this, the carbon tax. Now, seen from the outside, that tax looked like France acting as a good global citizen, saying we're going to reduce carbon emissions in order to do our part to contribute to the reduction of global warming. All economists that you speak to tell you that the only realistic way to reduce carbon emissions is to tax them. And so the government of France decided uh, under Emmanuel Macron to adopt such a tax. Were the protesters being anti-environmentalist in protesting this tax or was there another nuance to it? Well, actually, it it came um, as the last uh, straw, if you'd like, because it started early in the summer uh, 2018 when the speed limit on French roads uh, was reduced from um, 90 to 80 uh, kilometers. And that enraged a lot of people in provincial France, if you'd like, especially people who rely on their cars to go about their day, to uh, drop their children's school or, or to go to their work. Then there was a hike in uh, petrol and diesel prices. Then uh, there was also a more, if you'd like, compulsory measures for when you do an MOT, when you have to get a certificate that your car is in good shape, which you have you have to do regularly in France. And there, there have been more um, implemented uh, just a, a few months later. And so that carbon tax... Um, was really the last straw. It was, um, I don't think on its own, it would have created any movement in particular, but it came after a long series um, of measures that were deemed um, affecting primarily car drivers. And we're not talking about, you know, city dwellers. We're not talking about metropolitan France, if you'd like, uh, people living in um, major cities or, or Paris because they don't need to rely on their car to go about their day every day. Uh, we're talking about people in rural France and they felt, you know, in a way targeted. So in the first instance, this felt like an attack on drivers. And in the French context, that also means an attack on rural people, people who are not in the elite centers of the city and people who rely on their on their cars to get around. And indeed, the first form of the protest was to block roundabouts or rotaries, as we call them in American English, and block traffic from traveling through at all. And that, too, connected to the idea of freedom to drive. And it's as though the protesters were saying, if you're going to impinge on our freedom to drive, then we're going to impinge on your freedom to get around the country. Then the protests moved into the city and some began in, in Paris itself. Tell us about how that happened. Well, protesters didn't come from, um, you know, the cities or, or Paris. They, they came to Paris on Saturdays, if you'd like, like tourists. Mm -hmm. A day to, trip. To yep. protest. Um, it was never a Parisian revolt. Uh, it was very much a provincial 
revolt. And and you know, at the beginning, we we use the words of Jacquerie, if you'd like, um, which is sort of peasants, the 17th century peasant revolts against a centralized power. And those were typically driven by genuine starvation. I mean, that's that's the that's the old precedent. Of course. Um, but it was also revolt against uh, the local elite, if you'd like. So, so the, the first yellow vest, if you'd like, when, when they started rallying on a social networks and they said, OK, well, we need to strike. We're going to strike on Saturday, the 17th of November 2018. That will be our, our first action throughout the country. And there were quite a lot of them. There were um, just under 300,000. I mean, by French standards, it's not enormous, but it's enough for the country to, to, to stop and to think, okay, what's happening here? And so those uh, first yellow vests um, belong to what uh, in Britain we would call uh, the squeezed middle, if you'd like. That is to say, not destitute, not you know, very poor people, not at all, but not rich either. And in France, it means a lot of people. We're talking about lo- lower middle class, middle classes, um, people who perhaps are too rich to get you know, a lot of benefits um, and uh, uh, not rich enough, obviously, to be able to afford um, living in places where they don't uh, have to rely entirely on their car. I mean, class consciousness and class politics are deeply embedded in the historical French story. But when one thinks about that, historically, one doesn't think about the squeezed middle. One thinks about the, the rises of the peasants, as you described in the pre-revolutionary period. One thinks about the rise of the bourgeoisie, which is a kind of rising middle class. Uh, one thinks about an aristocratic elite uh, or later a technocratic elite. But there hasn't been a central place, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, in the long French narrative of, of class for people like you're describing. Is that, is that so? And if it is, what, what's the French term that, or what, what language have, have French commentators or observers used to describe this social class? I mean, you're, you're, you're right in the sense that it was novel and it took time for sociologists, for demographers um, to grasp the movements. And one of them actually said, it's not a class, it's a mass. What's the difference between those things? In the sense that, for instance, if you, if you take um, the age of the Yellow Vest, Actually, you had people from uh, the age of uh, 17 to the age of 77. So really people from all ages? All ages. Also, a lot of artisans, a lot of self-employed, also some um, entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. You know, my that's why perhaps we'll talk about my uncle mm-hmm. later. But he's a self-made man, so it makes him, in a way, uh, uh, you know, uh, part of the uh, of the people, if you'd like. Also, he doesn't come from uh, the aristocracy. He comes from middle, uh, lower bourgeoisie. Yes. So it was, you know, and a lot of men and a lot of women, a lot of also uh, single parents and single mothers who uh, had difficulty making ends meet. A lot of uh, um, professionals from, you know, a lot of nurses, uh, some teachers. So, you know, it was a mix, a very, very diverse mix. So it's quite difficult to apply the, the class system to it. Um, and that's why also I resorted to a, a very English, as in British, uh, uh, term, the squeezed middle class. Right. But you don't think it's an, ex- it's not actually, it doesn't exactly capture it. But I do, I do have the sense from, from reading that most of the people who have come out for the protest do experience themselves 
as suffering from economic privation. It's not not impoverished, but barely making it in, in some sense. And it seemed to me that that was why your story was so fascinating, precisely because your uncle didn't fit into that category. No, he didn't. My uncle, Jojo, is um, in his 60s. Um, he's um, well off. He was the CEO of a large European company, although he belongs also um, to, you know, a category of retired um, people who do have worries for their children and grandchildren, uh, somebody who lives in the provinces, somebody who feels quite lonely and who discovered sort of fraternity uh, in on, on those roundabouts. Um, and a lot of people uh, started talking uh, to neighbours they wouldn't uh, talk to otherwise. So especially at the beginning of the movement, it was really striking to see that there was this fraternity, uh, which is so French, and also given the very striking figure of cafes. You know, um, 60 years ago, there were 200,000 cafes in France. There are only now 36,000. And uh, uh, in sharp contrast, the roundabouts didn't exist 50 years ago, and now we've got more than 50,000. So the roundabout became very much uh, a place for conviviality. I mean, they, they built um, a sort of canteen, you know, and, and uh, tents. And they, you know, for weeks, uh, because now the, the movement has disappeared from the roundabouts, but for weeks, weeks and months, uh, they would converge and they would uh, have their little commune and debating societies on the roundabouts. So there, when you talk about fraternity, you're, you're translating the French word fraternité, which for Americans means something like, solidarity or a, a way of uh, feeling some sense of connectedness to other people. And so you're suggesting, if I understand you correctly, that one thing about this particular protest movement is that it offered some opportunity for connection to people who might feel in certain ways isolated and that they actually could take the roundabout or the rotary, which they had taken over, and make it for a, for a Saturday into a place to hang out, a place to interact with each other and a place to feel human connection, like you belong to a common project, which in French terms is a crucial element of national identity. It's one of the, the three big commitments of the, of the, French, the French model. Completely. And so we're talking about this mass rather than class of people who also feel, you know, underprivileged or vulnerable because they are lonely, a lot of single parents, a lot of lonely uh, uh, retired people and, you know, living in isolation in provincial France and often only having a relationship through the social networks in front of their computer screen. And then suddenly they uh, rekindled with, as you said very rightly, a very French way of life. Because those cafes that have disappeared through uh, you know, the last 60 years in France haven't disappeared from city centers. There's still plenty of cafes in Paris. It's out in the countryside where you don't exactly. have Exactly. You know, in villages, uh, there used to be many cafes and now, you know, you uh, there's perhaps one left, uh, but often there's none. Um, so we're talking about a disconnection between part of France that is successful, young metropolitan, that travels abroad, that is a sort of the radiant face of uh, globalization, just like President Macron. Who is young, who is elite, who is sophisticated who wears tailored suits, who is comfortable in multiple languages. He's the outward-facing picture of the modern French elite, and he's very far from 
the world of the small provincial town where the cafes have closed and there are jobs, but maybe not enough jobs for everybody. Completely. And that's why also, I don't know if you remember at the beginning, this hatred, uh, which we didn't quite understand because it was so, uh, it, it came from the guts, you know, and this hatred against Macron, the figure of Macron, was to do with what he personified. And you're saying he's um, a symbol of the elite. Of course he is, because he's now the president. He's also very young. And somehow um, they disliked that fact, if you like, because uh, the yellow vests thought, rightly or wrongly, that they belong to um, the losing France, if you like. So here it gets really, really interesting and also really complicated for outsiders to understand. So let's try to figure out a little bit the politics side here, because until now you've described very movingly, in fact, the sort of psychological experience of people who feel that the center doesn't care about them and that the elites aren't thinking about them. And that makes them sound extremely sympathetic. Politically, though, the movement did, as you've just described, focus on a kind of great anger at the the French president and at the idea that his politics somehow stood for making France in some way more like the United States, more market-driven. Macron's first you know, major reforms involved changing French law to make it easier for employers to fire employees, which has been very difficult under, under French law. That's a kind of market-oriented reform. And so the criticisms and the protests seem to take the form, in part at least, of an attack on this tendency of of Macron's to be uh, efficient, rational, and market-driven, and in that sense, distant from the more centralized, organized, top-down French system. Have any of the major French political parties that criticize Macron been able to capitalize on the movement? For example, has the French far-right which in some ways you would think would have shared a lot of the interests of the, of the protesters, you know, peripheral, not necessarily from, from the center of Paris, appealing to people who aren't the poorest, but are also not the, the rich elites. Have they, has anyone been able to capitalize on the movement for a political gain? Well, it's um, the heart of the matter right from the start, the far right and the far left and their respective leader, Marine Le Pen for the far right and Jean-Luc Mélenchon for the far left, try to surf on the wave of the yellow vest. They appeared with them, they put on yellow jackets, but the yellow vest didn't want to be associated with them, at least to start with. They were a leaderless movement. But the problem, of course, is when you constitute a movement, there's a moment um, when you need leaders. But each time they elected leaders, they were disowned, they were rejected. And when the government said, why don't you send your representatives so that we know what you would like, so that we can stop the violence on the Saturday uh, protest and we can start talks, um, they didn't send anyone. So it's never became uh, anything else else than a rebellion, if you'd like. One very interesting uh, thing is that a lot of Yellow Vest, when you met them, said, I have never voted in my life before. But more importantly, a lot of them said, it's the first time we, we take to the streets. So 
it's true that we're talking about uh, politically disfranchised citizens. And the far right and far left were very eager to capitalize on the Yellow Vest anger. And they failed. They completely failed. They were, at the latest uh, European elections, two um, Yellow Vest uh, um, sort of lists uh, people could vote for. And they uh, got 0.5% of the votes uh, between the two. Um, so in a way, it's the, you know, it's the death of the Yellow Vest uh, rebellion because they never managed to, to become anything else. That's completely fascinating in, in its own right. The idea that a movement had a desire to be heard, that the participants had a desire to be known, that they rejected, again, in a sort of inspiring way, the idea that they could be co-opted by either the far left or the far right. But then there's something that seems almost tragic about the idea that the movement simply peters out and gets close to dying by virtue of the fact that they've been heard. They've said their piece. The whole world has looked at them. The whole world has paid attention to them. France has paid attention to them. But they have, have they fundamentally changed anything? Have they changed the perspective on politics of any of the players, even if they haven't ultimately you know, joined? Is there going to be a long-term effect on the language or the ideas of French politics? We're talking about you know, people here in France who asked for more public services and less taxes. How do you square that circle? Um, you know, nobody can. And, and um, they also wanted a kind of direct democracy that is, in my view, the opposite of democracy. For instance, they said, oh, we we uh, want to bring down the government. We, we want Macron to resign. We don't want to, to have an, a national assembly anymore. We just want direct democracy. We'll just vote on the internet, you know, through uh, Facebook or whatever, on laws. Um, you know, we should have a, a system of referendum, for instance, for every single idea. I mean, things like this. The yellow vest are a symptom rather than, um, you know, uh, giving any answers to an anger. It's uh, it's a feeling, and um, and they certainly didn't come up with any possible rational political. Uh, um, recipes or, or, or ideas that could be later implemented. But is that asking too much of the movement to, to be, if they were rational politicians, they would form a political party and they would, you know, participate in electoral politics or they would be journalists or commentators or, you know, political scientists sitting in a seminar room and offering theories. That, that doesn't sound like what the movement was trying to be. Well, we still don't know what they were trying to be because in a way we're still focusing on the early stage of the Yellow Vest movement, because perhaps we should also say that the Yellow Vest became extremely violent. Let's let's turn to that. And was the movement hijacked, as some people say, hijacked by thugs or anarchists from the right or the left? Yes, completely. Um, professional anarchists, professional thugs, uh, which are very well known in France and come from the extreme right and the extreme left. And so we're talking only about people who sort of insurrectional. And at some point, you know, there was a, um, I was in Paris and I was present um, uh, during the Saturday protest and there was a sort of insurrectional uh, perfume in the air of, of, of Paris. Uh, but of course, they were never, 
they didn't have the number, if you like, to uh, to stage a coup uh, because that's what they were calling for. So I like the idea of an insurrectional perfume. It sounds like uh, insurrection would be the, a great name for a for, <laughs> for a new Dior perfume. But what, what does that mean? Do you mean that feeling in the air as though let's go burn it all down? Oh yes, completely. Look, I'm in my early forties. I. Um, to take to the street is part of a, um, it's a rite of passage for any mm-hmm. French citizen. I've been to countless demonstrations in, in Paris. And the, the, the level of violence uh, I experienced in the streets of Paris during the Saturday Yellow Vest um, were unlike anything we 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 seen before. And even people who were old enough to attend 68, uh, 1968 demonstrations in Paris said the same, you know, simply because they wanted to kill, when I say they, the thugs that infiltrated the Yellow Vest or some of the Yellow Vests wanted to um, destroy and to uh, um, also kill policemen if they could. And 2,000 policemen were actually injured, which is a very high figure for France, because don't forget, the arts, we have mastered the art of demonstration. We know how to do this. It's very theatrical. Yes, everyone has a role. Everyone knows what to do so that things don't get out of hand. Completely. And it can appear violent, but it's actually quite safe. Or it used to be until the yellow vest, because the yellow vest was about really very quickly on became about violence and pure violence. Even the police, the right police, was um, very uh, uh, struck by that. Um, they they actually didn't know how to react the first few Saturdays. Um, sometimes they were too passive and they were completely, um, you know, out of their depth, if you'd like. And a lot of destruction took place of buildings, but also um, some protesters were hit by rubber bullets, um, which is a non-lethal uh, sort of riot control guns that the French police is, is allowed to use. But so there were a lot of injured, uh, a high, high number of injured, but nobody died. And that's a miracle because the violence we all have seen in the streets of Paris was unlike anything uh, we had seen in decades. Did the violence ultimately contribute to the discrediting of the movement? Completely. I mean, that's why the real yellow vest, if you'd like, the people who really had something to say and had perhaps, you know, wanted to be helped by the government. And in the end, they were. Actually, I think we should say that President Macron actually gave 17 billion uh, euros worth of different benefits and and tax incentives and bonuses and and cancelled the carbon tax. I mean, he went much further than the original demands of the Yellow Vests. I mean, that goes to the question of the long-run impact of the movement. It did have, at least in the immediate, some of the movement's demands, even if they were in Kuwait, were in fact met. Oh, met and further than the original demands. Because in France, that's the way it is. When the people take to the streets in numbers, the uh, the government always responds. If, if you want a bit of history, you, we have to go back to the French Revolution. The legitimacy of the power in France lies with the people. Okay, In Britain, it lies with the parliament. It's a question of history. Or it used to. <laughs> yes, it used to until Brexit. That's another story. But um, so to go back to France, you know, the people is the power. Um, and as a French citizen, you know, you have this power and you play with it. But the violence 
to go back to your earlier question, meant that a lot of the early yellow vests decided they had nothing to do with violence and the violent people, and they stayed at home. So from 300,000 people, we very quickly went to, what, 20,000. So there was a natural trajectory, as it were. The people, or some of the people, expressed themselves. They said they spoke on behalf of a broader people. The violence discredited the movement. The government responded. And then, as if on cue, the movement began to recede in numbers, perhaps having achieved the goal of drawing attention to the problems of the people who who marched, but without offering a permanent kind of a solution. Completely. And also the fact that uh, the, the few yellow vests that uh, tried a sort of democratic exercise of presenting themselves at the European elections failed so lamentably, you know, is the kind of uh, um, end to the movement, yes. A kind of coda. Thank you, Agnes. That was very, very fascinating. And I really, really appreciate your time. I look forward to reading more of your work going forward. Thank you. It's with great love and admiration for France that I note that only a French person would describe a day of riots and protests in Paris as a day when there was a perfume of insurrection in the air. Yet the truth is there's something very powerful and significant about the trajectory of the Yellow Vest protests, which tells us something not only about France, but about the way that populist movements all over the world express their anger, express their demands, and ultimately still have difficulty turning them into concrete long-term political action. That's something that I think we should watch not only in Europe, but everywhere in the world, including right here in the United States. Populism is our constant refrain. It's in the news every day. But populism that isn't transformed into long-term political movement is just the expression of emotion. It clarifies, it expresses, but it doesn't fix things. It's one of the most powerful impulses in all of our political lives. It's also one of our most dangerous. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott with engineering by Jason Gambrell and Jason Rostkowski. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there.
Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, Yeah. And some waves, so we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that! A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Wait, did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.